It is very naive to assume that the heavier weight you're moving, the more you're loading a muscle. You can actually load a muscle more with less weight based on the kind of physics you're using. So if you're using a longer lever, you're magnifying the weight that you're using much more. If you have better alignment, you're magnifying the weight much more. If you are able to use a lot of weight, it means that you're using inefficient mechanics. It means basically you're lifting something up with a crowbar, right? The heavier the weight feels, the more efficient the mechanics is. If you can load your side deltoid maximally with 30 or 40 pounds, and you think it might be better to overhead press 150 pounds, then you're just missing the point. Hey, what's up, Inform Nation? Thanks again for joining us here on the Inform Fitness Podcast, where we discuss slow-motion, high-intensity strength training in a safe and effective manner. I'm Tim Edwards, the founder of the Inbound Podcasting Network and a client of Inform Fitness. And in just a moment, we'll have the founder of Inform Fitness and New York Times bestselling author himself, Adam Zickerman, who will lead the show along with the GM of the Manhattan location, Mike Rogers, and co-owner of the Toluca Lake Burbank location, Sheila Melody. The voice you heard at the top of the show belongs to professional bodybuilder Doug Brignoli. Now listen, if you're not interested in bodybuilding, don't go anywhere because you are really going to enjoy our time with Doug. Not only does he have a really big and fun personality, but he's chock full of valuable information that would be both interesting and useful for anybody interested in strength training safely. Doug's going to share his deep knowledge of biomechanics and training principles, including compound movements versus isolation movements, exercise versus recreation, the pros and cons to adding variety to your workouts, static versus dynamic exercises, the proper form of exercise to improve your balance and core strength, and finally, intensity and recovery. And we'll touch on all those topics and more, which means that this episode might last a few of your commutes if you're listening in the car or several walks around the block if you're walking the dog. However you might be listening, we hope you enjoy our time with Doug Brignoli. So glad to have you with us. Thank you. It's great to be it's, here. It's a real honor to uh, talk to somebody with your experience and expertise in this field. Uh, so, so Doug is a bodybuilder, right, Doug? Yes, I guess you could say that, although that's sort of like a small piece of what I do. Because <laughs> exactly. there's a lot of bodybuilders that don't do what I do. Yeah. So what makes Doug so unique is that Doug is an intellectual bodybuilder, I guess you can call it. And he, he hasn't really uh, fallen prey to all the cultural and, and mythological aspects of bodybuilding that have existed for, I don't know, 50 years, 60 years, 70 years and beyond. 100 years, actually, yeah. There you go. What I like about you, Doug, is as a bodybuilder, you, you debunk a lot of the myths that people have have had about bodybuilding. Like, uh, for example, we're going to get into a lot of things about this. Uh, but like, for example, uh, you say, which is unusual for uh, the bodybuilding community, you say that varying exercises for the same body part is really not essential for, for, for muscle growth. So many popular exercises in bodybuilding are just downright dangerous and at the very least inefficient. You talk about why it's impossible that to uh, isolate your lower abs, for example, right. and the the myths the myths go on and on that 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 you talk about that we've been talking about too. So it's nice, but but no one listens to me really sometimes because let's you know I, I'm not big and muscular and what no, do you're I right, know? A title holder ends up getting more attention than a PhD. 
Yeah. So what do I know? Right. I mean, look at you. You're a skinny little, you know, uh, nine, uh, five foot nine Jew. And uh, come on. So so the thing is, this is why I like talking to, to guys like you, because you are not following the culture and still you've been a competitive and very successful bodybuilder. So can you just give us a little brief uh, synopsis of, of your uh, bodybuilding history and, and some of your accomplishments, not just yeah. the bodybuilding, but also uh, as succinctly as possible, talk about your, your career as well. All right. Well, um, I, I started weight training when I was 14 because I was very skinny and I just wanted to gain some muscle. Uh, and I was fortunate enough to be living about five blocks away from a gym that was owned by four-time Mr. Universe winner, Bill Pearl. Uh, and I went there, I had no money essentially, and we struck a deal and I would go in there every Saturday and scrub the showers and do janitorial work in exchange for membership. And I started competing within a year. Um, uh, 16 years old was my first contest. By the time I was 19, I had won Teenage California and Teenage America. At 22, I won Mr. California. At 26, I won my division of Mr. American, Mr. Universe. And I continued competing on and off uh, until I was 56, which is a 40-year span of competitions, longer than most people, for sure, who's, who've been in that sport. So along the way um, of all these years of competing, I was very analytical about you know, what it is that constitutes a good exercise or a bad exercise. There has to be mechanical components. And whatever those mechanical components are that could be deemed good or bad would naturally be consistent across the board. If incomplete range of motion is bad in one exercise, it'd be bad in all of them, for example. And bench press is one example of that, right? When you finish a bench press, your hands are far away from the center of your body. So if that's an incomplete range of motion anywhere else, why wouldn't it be there? So um, I, a lot of the things that I was realizing were very profound uh, and have names, technical names, and I would later discover them as I would go to cadaver dissections and read university textbooks and 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 just sort of ponder um, sort of the correlation between the physics, the anatomy, the sociology, <laughs> the brainwashing that has you know been happening through all these years that have led people to believe that certain things are just to be not questioned, like compound movements, and people will say, oh, you need a foundation in the power lifts to bodybuild. Well, there's just no logic in that, really. I mean, a, a muscle doesn't know uh, if it's working alone or if it's working at the same time other muscles are working. So um, I came out with this book about uh, a year ago called The Physics of Fitness, which basically explains biomechanics and explains what works and what doesn't work and why. And how physics and anatomy sort of join forces. And um, it's, I guess you could say it's rocking, making waves because it goes against conventional wisdom. Uh, you know, as far as I see it, I always see uh, approaching exercise and, and how to build a program for yourself uh, as coming at it from two fronts. One, you have the biomechanics front and then you have the physiology front. Right. All right. So what I'd like to focus on uh, initially because I do want to get into both fronts, but initially I want to get into this biomechanics front. And when I was first introduced to you, uh, you had sent me a chapter of one of your books basically talking about compound movements versus isolation movements, which, which is really fascinating because uh, when we were talking about beliefs before uh, and, and all these beliefs that exist in, in exercise culture, 
uh, one that can be traced back hundreds of years, like you said, is that is the belief that compound movements, uh, otherwise known as multi-joint, multi-muscle type movements, are generally better than simple isolation movements, single joint, single muscle movements. Now, I want to talk about how this belief got started, but before I do, just for people listening that don't know the terminology, uh, quickly explain the difference between a compound movement and a simple movement. As you said, a compound movement is a multi-joint, multi-muscle movement. Um, that some people refer to as functional, which is absurd because it suggests that something that isn't compound is dysfunctional, (laughs) right? But that would almost suggest that if you do isolation exercises, somehow your body isn't going to be able to coordinate all of its various muscle strains at the same time. It's absurd. I mean, yes, it's true that if you're doing dead hand cleans, you get skilled at doing dead hand cleans, right? So... That doesn't necessarily mean that you can cross that over into something that doesn't look anything like a dead hand clean. Just means you're learning a skill. You're learning to coordinate all of the muscles that participate in that movement in a particular event. But it, but the idea that the, that it's a compound movement would then make you better able to use those participating muscles as a, as compared to isolation exercises has no logic in it whatsoever. So how did this get started? I mean, like, wh- where did this fascination and, and this uh, reverence of compound movements get started? Well, it, it started, in fact, in my book, I talk about how, um, you know, once upon a time, um, without superior strength, um, as a man, you were in big trouble, right? You couldn't provide food for yourself. You couldn't protect yourself in battle. You couldn't provide for your family. You couldn't provide for your offspring. You couldn't good protect your... Hear, yeah, it's a good thing I live now. Well, no, that's the whole point is that in my book, I talk about how today, you know, survival is about having knowledge, skills, you know, earning ability. This is how we survive today in a civilized society. But back then, none of that mattered. What mattered was literally your physical strength. And so what ended up happening was that um, they would there would be like, you know, stories of whether it's Hercules or, you know, any of these people that has superior strength, Milo of Cretan, you know, uh, that you know, he would carry a bull every day on his shoulders as daily exercise. And so it became this sort of like fabled thing where exhibitions of strength were really, really, really respected. Um, and so what ended up happening was eventually became circus acts. There would be people that would hold a platform up with 16 people standing on the platform or a man lifting an elephant. And so nobody cared how strong each individual muscle was. What they cared was how much total the lift was. Mm-hmm. And so but when bodybuilding came along, and by the way, in the early years of bodybuilding, it was considered vain. It was considered dishonorable to pursue aesthetics. Yeah, I remember uh, you, you saying that isolation exercises were regarded as vanity exercises. Well, uh, and, yeah. and it, was, it was only focusing on one's appearance. Right. It, it, there's a, a magazine that was uh, actually uh, several issues had a banner at the bottom that said, weakness, a crime. Don't be a criminal. <laughs> well, what it might as well have said is a la- failing to exhibit strength is a crime. <laughs> so if you did a variety of exercises that were isolation exercises, you could be deemed a criminal because you weren't exhibiting a large lift at one time. Never mind that each individual muscle that's working in isolation might actually be working harder than it would be in a compound lift. So, 
it just became that this sort of conventional wisdom that if you wanted to bodybuild, you had to start off with deadlifts and heavy squats and bent over barbell rows and overhead presses. But if you look at the body as just a machine with of pulleys and levers and pivots, and then you, you realize that it's just a mechanism. And the idea that you can, I mean, it, you wouldn't, you would never, let's say, look at, a, at, a, at an actual machine made out of steel and pulleys and, 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 and somehow come to the conclusion that that machine would work better if it had multiple things working at one time than one. I mean, a machine is a machine, mm -hmm. right? And the body is a machine. And so um, if, you, if you really want to um, train as efficiently as possible, meaning the lowest risk of injury and the maximum amount of loading for the energy and, and amount of weight used, isolation mm -hmm. are actually better. Yes. So are you telling me then that uh, in your career as a bodybuilder, uh, you avoided compound movements or, or, and most of your training was done with isolation movements uh, or, or you mixed it up? Well, I, I will tell you this, that I had a very, very good sense from the very beginning of what, what felt natural or what didn't feel natural. Okay, so a squat, for example, is a compound exercise, but it involves basically two natural movements, hip extension and knee extension. Now, we can talk about how efficient that is in just a moment, but at least each of those two joints are doing what those joints do best. Right. Now, let's look at an upright row. That is absolutely not true for an upright row. An upright row is a very contorted exercise, yep. which makes you twist your wrist sideways. Yep. Your deltoid does not end up where the deltoid would end up if you were doing a lateral abduction. Um, and so I always tell people, like, if you look at someone doing an upright row and you just imagine the straightening their arms when they're atop, you go, oh, guess what? That pretty much ends where a side raise would end. The only thing you've done now is, is bent the elbow and inverted it forward. Yeah. And there's, there's no benefit to the deltoid for doing that. It's just a less comfortable movement. So um, I avoided the compound movements that seemed unnatural. Sure. But I did do the compound movements like squat that seemed natural without joint distortion. But then you can get into things like, like if you look at a, let me just get into a little tiny bit of physics here. I won't dwell on it too much, but um, in physics, any lever that is parallel to the direction of resistance, and right away people are glazing over, I think, right? As I say that, <laughs> um, like a lamppost is vertical because a lamppost is vertical to gravity. And so it's balanced over its base. But if you tried to anchor that lamppost at a 45-degree angle, you'd have to bolt it down to the ground with a lot more force, a lot more bolts, because now it wants to fall. Okay, so a, a lever that mm -hmm. is parallel to gravity or whatever resistance is is going to be a zero neutral lever, and one that is perpendicular to gravity or whatever you happen to be using for resistance is going to be what I call a 100% lever, a maximally active lever. So when you look at a squat, and you realize that the lower leg is the operating lever of the quadricep, and you realize that it doesn't even reach a 45 degree angle, you say, well, it's actually closer to neutral than it is to fully active. It's more of a, more of a glute exercise than, than a quadricep well, exercise. So let's, we'll look at that in just a moment. So what I wanna say is, you know, if you're doing, a, let's say a 200 pound squat, you've got 200 pounds pressing down on your spine, that's the cost, Right, and the benefit is, thirty percent of that is going on your quad. That's not a good trade-off. Thirty percent benefit 
and all the spinal compression. Right. So, as opposed so then, to, let's say, a knee extension. Right. So, so then someone would say, well, yeah, okay, maybe the lower leg does actually only go to about a 30-degree angle from neutral, but the femur does get vertical. I mean, does get horizontal. Mm -hmm. right? It does get perpendicular. And I go, yes, but look what's happening with the lower leg. The lower leg is doubling under the femur. Right? It's doubling mm -hmm. back under the femur, which is effectively shortening the femur. Yeah. Right? So when we talk about mechanics, there's a thing called the moment arm. And the moment arm happens when you draw a vertical line straight up from, the, say, the heel, straight up, and straight up through the hip joint. And you realize that instead of being the length of a regular femur, it's about half the length of a regular femur. So, yes, you're getting an active femur, but a very shortened femur. And someone says, well, how can we make that better? Well, ironically, the way you make the femur more effective is by taking that lower leg and instead of having it be an inward angle, having it straight be it. straight down. And then you've eliminated the quad. <laughs> right? So that's the irony is by working both, you're compromising both. Right. That's a good argument for why it's better to isolate because as soon as you try to combine a glute and a quad exercise, you literally compromise both. You got a percentage. And this is all about percentages, by the way. When someone says, you right. know, is your, what is your method all about? I basically say, well, it's about efficiency, which is about Max, percentages. Yeah. In the context of how we use our muscles in our life, when people talk about functional training, muscles work together. The quadriceps, the glutes, the hamstrings, the hips. And should we be thinking about how to train these muscles in the context of working together. The first thing I'll, we should probably do is define what a natural movement is. Okay, so if, if we go by the, 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 the fact that all muscles pull toward their origins, okay, that is an absolute fact. The muscle can do nothing other than pull towards its origin. If, well, you, are, if you are a pectoral muscle uh, fiber origin standing on a sternum and you're holding that pectoral fiber that goes across the chest, crosses the shoulder joint, ties into the upper end of the humerus, the only thing you can do is pull toward you. You're gonna pull that humerus toward you. Now, whether that humerus actually does come toward you depends on whether or not other pectoral fibers are also pulling, and so maybe collectively we'll pull in a slightly different direction. But I can only pull toward me, right? So, so the most natural movement would be taking a limb towards, directly toward it's that origin. muscle origin. The other way of looking at natural movement is to say, how have our joints evolved? And for what reason have they evolved that way? So once upon a time, we were quadrupeds. We walked on all fours. Little by little, we started walking slightly more upright, which meant that we, when we were quadrupeds, we were pushing straight down with our pecs. And as we got more and more upright, we were pushing progressively more downward, right? But we never had to push upward. There was never a reason, there was never a, a, a need to push toward an incline angle. There were no incline benches in the early days of hominids, <laughs> right? And, and the only way to create an incline angle would, would have been to elevate your upper body so that your head was much lower than your feet. And there would have been no functional, purposeful reason to do that. So our shoulder joint, nor our musculature, has evolved to perform an incline movement. It has evolved to perform forward and downward decline movements. So this is how I typically say, let's start off by saying, what is a natural movement? Something that we have evolved to do. An overhead tricep extension 
is not something that we had to do with that shoulder joint on a regular basis. If the objective is to work the triceps, you can work it with the shoulder joint in a much more natural position, that being with your upper arm alongside your, your, your torso. Anyway, so what I say is this is, you know, since my background and my focus is bodybuilding, what I try to do is I say, how can we get the most bang for the buck in terms of muscle development? Well, the best way we do that is by be working in as pure a form as possible. I mean, by making that lever go directly to and exclusively to the origin of that muscle. So it's the most says, efficient way of using that muscle. Yeah. Now, if you do that, the strength you gain in that those pectoral fibers can be applied in any way. It can be applied when you're washing dishes. They can be applied when you're juggling. They can be applied in, in a million different ways. It's, it, it would be ridiculous to assume that it would only work for exercises that were similar to the ones you did in the gym. So it is functional, right? There's no way that a muscle can get stronger and then not coordinate with other muscles when the time comes. But when someone says, so are you saying that we should never do compound exercise? I say, no, because if you combine, let's say, uh, uh, let's say you're doing a, a, a curling with a step up. Okay, you're stepping up and at the same time you're curling. Okay, well, you've got more muscles working You've got more oxygen demand. You've got more cardiovascular stimulation. There's benefit there. If you're working only in isolation, you know, less, so if you're trying to combine some right. strength training with some cardiovascular and some proprioception training, which is right. basically coordination, right. that's a good thing to do. But if your goal is to, is to build muscle, then you're going to care less about proprioception. Yeah, well, that's why that, that's why uh, we do both. That's why when, when we program most most of our clients workouts and we recommend people how to work out we like mixing both in. we like we right. like the efficiency of the isolation movements and really working that muscle uh to its truest uh function truest right. tracking its truest function uh and like you said i mean there's no there's no doubt that doing a knee extension tracks that function of the quadriceps a lot better than a squat would or even a leg press would but I also take in consideration what you were mentioning before also. I mean, a compound movement is metabolically much more right. demanding. Absolutely. And, and you go from exercise to exercise doing compound and and, movements. And, 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 and it's more athletic. Right. There's, there's yeah. more athleticism that is required, and there's a, that's a coordination advantage. Yeah, and I and I see physiological benefits from pushing the energy systems drastically, right. and 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 the best way to push energy systems yes. to their max is 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 through uh, is through compound movements. So, so and, and, as and, long and, as and, those compound movements are, are are generally safe, and yeah. I'm not putting I'm not putting barbells on or recommending right. people put barbells over their shoulders right. to do a compound type movement. Right. Uh, like like you mentioned, I know you mentioned this stuff. There are other ways of doing squats or or or, or compound uh, leg movements without putting uh, huge levers on your shoulders with, with lots of yeah. weight on yeah. both putting ends. A, putting a metal barbell on, at the very top of your spinal column <laughs> is not a good idea. <laughs> I mean, the spine is a lever, right? So you put a, a load at the top sure. of that lever, I and I always tell people, you know, now. the Leaning Tower of Pisa has its greatest stress at the base opposite the lean. Yep. That's the lower back. Mm -hmm. yeah. right, so there's no way you're going to be able to put a weight on the top and not strain the lower back. A purist, someone like, let's say, me who just says, you know, I want to get from point A to point B as forcefully and dramatically and as quickly as I possibly can, then I'm going to exclude the stuff that isn't maximally productive, right? But 
when we're dealing with the public as trainers, we also have to realize that there's a compliance issue. There's a motivation issue. Yeah. There's a fun enjoyment issue, right? So if, if, we're, if, we're, yeah, <laughs> if we're too, if we're too monotonous, um, monotonous, by the way, is certainly um, productive, but it makes it less fun. And there are some people with a psychology, psychological profile that just absolutely need some variety or else they will get so bored, they will end up quitting. And so for those people, it's better off to just keep things a little interesting, even if it means that what you're trading away is 5%, 8% productivity, but you're bringing more enjoyment to the program. And so it, it helps them with their compliance. If you were to lay out in the sun every day for 30 minutes, and after doing this for two months, you think you're plateauing. And so you think you need variety. So you decide that you're going to go try some incandescent light instead <laughs> or you decide you're going to try some fluorescent light or infrared light or neon light right and you realize no because these aren't all equal forms of stimulation right so if you've plateaued from being in the sun it doesn't mean that sunlight or uvb light or uv light isn't the best way to tan it just means that you need a little break take three days to six days off and then when you come back everything's fresh again <laughs> right so now Let's compare that to exercise. Let's say someone says, you know, I've been doing these tricep pushdowns with the cable for the last three months. I'm, I think I'm going to switch to parallel bar dips. Well, guess what? The tricep is still doing the exact same thing. The tricep extends the elbow. That's all it does. Just not as efficiently. Far from it, actually. Far from it. So It's more, um, it's more, it's more stress on your anterior delt and, yes. uh, than so, it is your tricep. So why do it? And this is, this is what I explain to people is um, getting back to what we were talking about before about parallel levers versus perpendicular levers. When you see someone doing a bench dip or a parallel bar dip, and you notice that their forearm is almost vertical, it only breaks from the neutral vertical position by about 11 degrees. Which so means the tricep, which, 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 which means which your is, tricep is only getting about 11%. Right, right. right. So here's the math I do on that. As I say, if you're a 180 pound guy and you wanna figure out how much load each tricep is gonna get, you say, okay, I'm 180 pounds. I'm going to divide that by two arms. That's 90. The length of your forearm is about a 12 to 1 ratio. So you have a magnification of 12. So you say 90 times 12 times 11% active lever gives you about 119 pounds of load per tricep at a cost of 180 pounds of effort. But if that same person were to lie on a flat bench with a pair of 20-pound dumbbells, Skull where, the forearm, yeah. where the piriform does actually cross gravity at 100%. You do the same math. You say 20 pounds times 12 times 100% is 240 pounds of load per tricep at a total cost of 40 pounds. Right? So this is efficiency. Why would you bother doing an exercise that costs you 180 pounds of effort but only load your tricep with 119 pounds when you can do 40 pounds of cost and 240 pounds of load, and it's not like it's working a different head of the tricep. Right. All three heads are working in both ways. It's just that they're they have drastically different efficiencies. All right. So let me let me let me translate that for somebody, for example, <laughs> because you know there are going to be like most of our listeners that didn't understand a word you just said. This is the bottom line. This is the bottom line. The bottom line is this: that that what what, what you're saying is we're trying to work the triceps, and uh, the triceps don't function as well. 
uh, uh, for that barbell dip as it does for the other exercise that you talked about, the skull crushers. And the thing is this. Let's make an analogy just so you understand this. Uh, we, we use word processors nowadays to write letters. And uh, just for variety's sake, we're getting bored with our word processors. We, we decide to dust off our old corona. Right. Now, that's a much less efficient uh, system, but we're just doing it because, what the hell, I'm nostalgic and I want to go back to the old days right. of using a typewriter. But it's not going to do the job as well. It's right. just not. It's, it can still do the job, right? Yeah. It does the job much less efficiently. So the and, question and is, and I tell people, if you want to have fun, it? if you're doing it for fun and you understand that you're trading down and yeah. you, you're willing to accept right. that trade down, great. One but don't think they're equal. Right. And I want to add one more thing to that. Now, in the case of the typewriter and the word processor, you're not taking any risk to get injured. You're just wasting your time. And right. if you want to have fun and go back to the old Corona days, have fun and type a letter with an old Corona and, and kind of go down memory lane. But in the case of what you're talking about, choosing an inferior exercise is not only less, less efficient sometimes, but it's also much more dangerous. Because yeah. in, in the case of parallel dips, all right, you are putting undue stress on the anterior delt right. and the pecs for that matter because they're being stretched in an unnatural position. Right. All right, and they're being they're not you're not they're not bringing the humerus towards your middle of your torso. Toward the sternum, right. They're going up. So so not only is your deltoids your anterior delts taking a strain that's unnecessary, so is your pecs. Yeah. All yeah. for a very inefficient way of working your delt uh, your yeah. your triceps. Doesn't make sense. Why well, if, do if, it? if you if you ask the average person, why are you doing parallel bar dips? they would say for pecs and triceps. But ironically, as you said, the pecs and triceps are getting far less work than the front deltoids, and that's not the objective of the exercise, and they are far better front deltoid exercises. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. All right, so let's move on. That, that, that covers that. All right, so uh, just choose your exercises carefully. We've been saying this forever. We've been saying this forever. I want to talk to you about a couple other things. Uh, I read something that you wrote that reminded me of something that we also always talk about. You know, we say there's a big difference between what we say. Ken Hutchins came up with this. You, are you familiar with Ken Hutchins and yeah, his huh? work, his super slow huh? technique, right? All right, so so Ken Hutchins came up with what I consider one of the seminal articles uh, in exercise history, which is the exercise versus recreation. And I know you agree with this because I, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna quote something you wrote actually, if you don't mind. Huh. All right, it says this is this is uh, your you. Uh, it is important to understand the difference between the goal of muscular development, bodybuilding, and general fitness. And the goals, which also involve the use of weights, but are not intended for the purpose of muscular development or general fitness. For example, powerlifting and Olympic lifting are sports that incorporate the use of weights, but are fundamentally different from the goals of getting stronger. The goal of a powerlift is to lift maximum amount of weight in specific lifts. The goal of the bodybuilder or the person that's generally trying to get into good shape and get real strong is to develop the physique to gain a reasonable amount of useful strength to improve one's health and remain injury free. So you're you're right there. So uh, you know it, it kind of reminds me of of all the things that uh, the brands CrossFit is doing and trying to make those sport and recreational activities into some kind of uh, fitness program. Well, and then what I tell people is um, it is very naive to assume that the heavier weight you're moving, the more you're loading a muscle. Right. You can actually load a muscle more with less weight based on the kind of physics you're using. So if you're using a longer lever, you're magnifying the weight that you're using much more. If you have better alignment, you're magnifying the weight much more. 
which means you don't have to use as much weight if you're right. if you're taking those things into yeah. account. And it's yeah, much in, in fact, in fact, let's go one step farther. I'll go so far as to say that if you are able to lose to use a lot of weight, it means that you're using inefficient mechanics. It means basically you're lifting something up with a crowbar. Mm -hmm. Right. The heavier the weight feels, the more efficient the mechanics is. You, if you can load your side deltoid maximally with 30 or 40 pounds and you think it might be better to overhead press 150 pounds, then you're just missing the point. The point yeah, is, to over, is to overload the muscle. And again, to move a lot of weight. again, now you're involving rotator cuff muscles that just can't handle that kind of strain when you add all right. that extra weight. Right. All right. Good. All right. Uh, another question for you. Static versus dynamic dynamic exercises. Uh -huh. uh, so, some people add static contractions into their routine to increase strength and break plateaus. Uh, that that's what that's the thought process. Do you see static exercise as a viable technique, or uh, is this is its application limited? Status? I think it's extremely limited. Look, there have been a number of studies that have shown that isometric exercise is far less productive, both from the perspective of developing a muscle, enlarging the muscle, and from the perspective of gaining strength through a muscle's entire range of motion. It gains strength right where you're holding it. It, does, it gains a little strength in the other parts of the range of motion, but not nearly as much. So if you want strength, if you want, what, let's use the word functional strength, strength through a muscle's entire range of motion, you're better off using range of motion, right? So is there a place for isometric? Sure. If you have an injured joint, rehab, then you use it as part of your rehabilitation. But this idea that, that we're going to do planks as the best exercise for the abs would be like saying, well, let's just do static everything then. Let's just do static wall squat where you just hold the squat position. Let's just do static barbell hold. Let's just do static pectoral hold. I mean, if it's good for one, it's good for all. If it's not good for one, it's not good for all. Right? So the idea that you're going to – people like the idea of doing planks because they think that – you know, it, it, if you're, a, bo if you're a, a boxer and you're trying to improve the rigidity of your spine against an opposing boxer hitting you in the gut, okay, fine. That's a very specific application. But dynamic tension of the abdominal muscle is going to be more productive for the same reason that it's more productive on any other muscle of the body. So opening and closing the spine, I mean, if you look at the, the function of the erectus abdominis, it is spinal flexion. That's its so job. So there are the insertion closer together. Yeah, and you're and you're and you're citing studies that have shown that doing dynamic exercises for a muscle group is more effective for strengthening than doing the static version right. of that right. for that muscle group. It's interesting because you know statics are done all the time, and uh, people think you know. I mean, there's, there are some equipment being made. You know, what about negative onlys? What do you think about negative only? Uh, you know, I, I won't. Production. I don't know enough about that. Again, this is yeah. this is physiology, and yeah. my specialty is mechanics. Right. Okay. Um, I, and, and I would have to refer to studies that were done to to know about that. Sure. I mean, I know there's benefit to eccentric motion, eccentric tension, um, yeah. and so I, I I I would be far less critical of that than I would be of static. Sure. Absolutely. Um, but but the reason why static is popular right now is because the industry has declared it. To be popular right now the industry needs to keep everyone with something new right otherwise how do you bring trainers back every year to a new convention <laughs> right they need you to keep coming back they need you to keep coming to new seminars you know yeah. it's not like the body changes from one year yeah. to the next it's like what's good for the body this year is going to be good for the body next year 
That's true. I think like a part of what creates debate is that people are different. They react to stimulus very differently. I mean, I know that the muscle is going to act the same way if it's flexed or if it's hold in a static position. But observationally, I have plenty of clients who, when I try to do an ab crunch on an abs machine, or a, you know, where they actually have to actually flex the abdominal muscles, yeah, uh, and they feel it, and they get a decent. They feel like they stimulated the muscle, but they don't feel like they quote unquote worked out versus then I'll say, okay, holding a plank for let's say 60 seconds. They're like, man, that was like 50,000 times harder than doing what you told me to do before. And I feel it in my abs so much more. Like, you know, you make a good point. And, and, and part of the game that we have as trainers is to, again, keep the workouts interesting for people and, and make them feel gratified by the workout they got. I will say, however, that when someone says, you know, well, wow, I'm surprised that parallel bar dips only load my triceps with 119 pounds of load. It feels like I'm working so much harder. Yeah. Well, you yeah. are working so much harder, but the triceps aren't. Right. <laughs> right. So getting back to the plank, you might be working harder because now you've got quadricep working. You've got hip flexor working. But if that the all your spinal stabilizer muscles working, your spinal erectus muscles working. Right. So the question is, you know, I, if for all the work and our job to some degree is to educate these people and say, well, you're working hard, but only 20% of what you were doing was actually stuff that, that, that is useful to you. The other percent of the effort, you know, the isometric quadricep, the isometric hip flexor is not going to be as productive as the dynamic hip flexor or the dynamic quadricep. So, you know, let's, let's not let ourselves be dictated entirely by the false impression we get by this quote unquote, right. I'm working harder thing. And because we're talking about planks, we're talking about hip flexor. And so what I wanna say is that any time that you involve the hip flexor as part of an ab exercise, you already have a conflict. And the reason I say that is because the hip flexor, the primary hip flexor, as you know, is the psoas. Mm -hmm. And the psoas originates on the lumbar spine. So when you activate the psoas, when you activate the hip flexors, you are pulling forward on that lumbar spine. Well, the objective of an abdominal exercise is the opposite. It is to pull forward on the pelvis, on the tailbone, to curve the spine under. So anytime you're trying to do a leg raise, you have one muscle that's trying to arch the spine and one muscle that's trying to curve it's very unsafe. Very unsafe. And, so you and end it's up unproductive getting, for the abs. You end up getting a conflict of interest where neither muscle gets what it wants to do very well. Even if you can create a, a posterior pelvic tilt and, and but maintain that position with that, you know what I'm saying? Well, yeah. I mean, look, like if you're doing, let's say, uh, you know, like a Roman chair knee tuck, where you're bringing your knees up and you're deliberately trying to pull your tailbone up under so that you can bring your pelvis. Up yes. toward the rib cage, okay. But the legs stay where, yeah. But the best way to do that then is, you know, just to keep your legs up and then just keep just very that very short range of motion of that tuck, and that's all you have to well, do is that tuck. You don't have to have right. the legs going up and down so far. Well, but but here's what I was going to say is, um, whether you intend it or not, you're still activating the hip flexor. Absolutely. And that hip flexor is pulling least. forward on that lumbar spine. Yeah. And so it is actually making the movement less successful. Right. It, is, it is literally preventing the abdominal muscle from fully contracting because it has something that's actually blocking that from happening. And but maybe even also causing strain on the back. Ugh. Yeah. Now, yeah. here's the thing is, like, you know, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but if you ask yourself, okay, any book that you look at, an anatomy book, will say, here's the origin, here's the insertion, right? Well, guess what? There's a pattern here. The pattern is whoever the anatomists were that first designated which to call 
the origin and the insertion, you'll notice that whatever is the origin is the more stable. The insertion mm -hmm. is the more mobile, right? Yeah. The insertion of the bicep moves toward the origin. It's not the other way around. We don't bring the origin toward the insertion. Same for the pectoral. We don't bring our sternum toward our humerus. We bring no. the humerus toward the sternum. Well, guess what? The origin of the erectus abdominis is the pubic bone. Yep. The origin, excuse the insertion, is on the rib cage. So the rib cage is meant to go down toward the pelvis, not right. the pelvis toward the origin. And either way, the muscle doesn't know the difference because it's just shortening. So the idea that you would try to tuck, you would try to bring the pelvis up toward the rib cage, thinking that somehow it's gonna create a different effect. All you've done is just made an exercise more difficult than it needs to be with the same outcome or less outcome. All right, so you know, you, we veered off a little bit because you were gonna talk about the lower abs, not, not the hip flexors. Well, All right, so, so well, can the, you work the lower abs? Well, no, I mean- just isolate I, the lower abs? <laughs> The reason, the reason I, I, I even mentioned lower abs is because the, the exercise that's always given uh, as, as the one to improve really your lower abs is the, is the leg raise. Right. Well, the abs right. don't even connect to the legs. Exactly. Right? Those so the mean. idea that you're raising the legs to work a muscle that isn't even connected to it is ridiculous, right? So the only thing you can sort of imagine is that, oh, yeah, while I'm bringing my legs up with a different set of muscles, I'm also bringing my tailbone, my pubic bone, up toward my rib cage. But if you have two guys on a tug of war, and first the guy on the right is winning, then the guy on the left is winning, that tension is going to be even throughout the whole rope. It doesn't matter who's winning. It doesn't matter which end is moving toward which end. Tension is always even throughout. So you so can't you can, isolate the lower abs. You cannot preferentially low. Now, here's what's interesting. They did an EMG study on about eight different exercises, and they connect an electrode to the top row of abs, the next row, the next row. And by the way, for those people that are listening that don't understand the genetics of this sort of thing, the dividers between those rows of abs are called tendinous intersections. Those are essentially tendons. So it separates they, your, your six packs from each other. They've been there since birth. You can never add another tendon. So if you've already gotten super lean and you know that when you're lean, you have a four pack, you can never get a six pack or an eight pack. You cannot add tendons, right? What you have is what you have, right? But what I was gonna say is the muscle fibers that stretch between the tendinous intersections have a very, very slightly different contractile ability. So what this EMG study discovered was that always, regardless of the exercise, regardless of whether it's a cable crunch, a machine crunch, a leg raise, whatever it is, you're always going to get slightly more contraction in the upper rows, second most contraction in the next row, third most contraction in the next row. And the reason for that is logical. Again, mechanical. The, the ones that contract with most force are straight across from the place of your spine that bends most. Right. That's why you will, no matter what you do, you can do a leg raise from here until the day you die, you will never get more contraction in the lower fibers than in the upper fibers because that is, again, genetically predetermined. The all or nothing principle. Well, it's all or nothing. The abs are slightly different, except it's still not variable. You're always gonna get more in the upper than in the lower, regardless of what you do. But the fact that the rectus abdominis is anchored at the rib cage and at the pelvis, for that muscle to do its job, it has to contract in its entirety. 
Okay, so you cannot what? Exclude part of it. I'm I'm chiming in here for the first time. Hey, Sheila, because of the abs. Welcome to the show, <laughs> I've been listening, paying attention, but <laughs> the abs are a big, big thing with obviously everybody that we train. So, um, what is the best ab exercise that you recommend? Well, okay, there's two things you said right now that are buzzwords. One is the abs are a big, big thing. Yes. Oh, <laughs> that's actually small. not true. Okay. Well, I mean, for clients, it's a concern. No, you know, they no, always I know. Talk I know that it. is what they come to us and complain about. But the reason I say it's a buzz is because what they're really saying is, I want to get rid of the fat that's covering my abs. Right. We tell that's them that. what they're that. actually saying. They're calling it the abs, but they're not saying that their abdominal muscle is, you know, only a four-pack and not a six-pack or, or weak. Right. They're saying, I want to work on my abs, which is code for I have fat there that I want to spot reduce. That's yeah, true. So, uh, okay, yeah, so we that's, do that's tell people that. part of the, of the problem. And then the next part of the problem is that, um, you know, people come, like we know we've all been in this, right? They, they come to us, the first thing they say is, well, I want to work on this, and I want to work on this, and yeah. I want to work on this, and I want to work on this. And everything they're pointing to are fatty deposits. Right. Suggesting that I want to remove these localized areas with some spot exercise, yeah. right? Well, either the, as we know, the fat, less, the fat loss switch is either on or it's off, right? If, if our body, and for those people that are not, that are listening that don't know how this process works, let's just say that you're riding a stationary bike, right? And your legs are doing the pedaling, your legs are doing the work, your quadriceps, your hip flexors, your calves, your glutes. Um, and let's just say that you haven't eaten enough fuel so you have a fuel shortage that you and your muscles are hoping will be uh, fixed, accommodated by uh, releasing fat cells, right? That fat isn't going to come off the legs. It doesn't come off the muscle or the, the, or, the, or the fatty deposit that's nearest the working muscle. And there's two reasons for that. One is because body fat is called adipose tissue. It is a, a form of fat storage that in and of itself is not usable yet. It needs to be converted to a free fatty acid before it's actually a usable fuel. And that conversion process doesn't happen locally. It happens systemically. So if I'm a quadricep muscle and I'm pedaling these, this it bike- It has to go through the liver first. It has to go, I, I'm gonna send out a systemic signal to the body for tiny little amounts of free fatty, of, of adipose tissue to convert to free fatty acid and then eventually enter the bloodstream and come to the working muscle, which is why we lose fat everywhere on our bodies when we're doing a stationary bike or anything. We lose it on our face, even though we're not pedaling with our face. <laughs> I was just thinking, you know, think about how many times when somebody starts losing weight and everyone says to them, oh, look, at you lost weight. Oh, really? Thanks for noticing. Yeah, your face looks so thin. Yeah, it's not right. like they're working out with their face, like you said, but right, that's the first right. place you notice it. In True. Their face. It comes off in the reverse order that it came on. You can't, you can't, and I always tell people, you can't choose where to put fat on, right? No, so you certainly like, can't choose where to take it off. All you can do is either put yourself in fat loss mode right. or not. So we should start using our face then. <laughs> yeah. And then it'll come off the abs. How about I pedal with my arms? Chewing more. When yeah, get dumb. someone says to us, I really want to focus on my abs, yeah. what I tell people is, look, we're going to focus on all the muscles of your body, including the abdominal muscles. But we're going to get more fat loss results in your midsection by doing leg exercises and stationary bike. And the, the abdominal exercises are not very metabolically active. You're not going to burn yeah. a lot of calories doing abs. 
right? No. So, and you're I certainly see. not going to get a lot of localized fat loss doing abs. Uh, suffice it to say, if you want to lose, uh, you want a six pack ab, just uh, watch what you eat. Uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, we were talking about dynamic versus static movements, and right. dynamic. When you when you talk about dynamic movements, you're going through a range of motion. When you and when you talk about dynamic movements, it's 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 hard to have that conversation without also talking about speed of movement, how quick right. these reps should be, uh, momentum. So there have been arguments in, in, in the annals of exercise, of course, as you know, is that some people say that explosive movements uh, are using speed and momentum to help you train for certain movements in real life and sports. In other words, if you are an athlete and you are required to play basketball, for example, and, and, and be very quick on the court, or a boxer that needs to be quick, that you should train quick. And when you're li weight, lifting weights, you should be lifting weights explosively uh, to to mimic that 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 sports movement or to improve your 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 quickness. Uh, would you agree with that? Yes, I would say if you're sports conditioning, you want to mimic your sport as much as possible. The problem is that a lot of people fantasize about being a sportsman of some sort. And then in the real world, they don't actually do it. In other words, they'll train like a boxer, but they're never really going to box, right? They just like the idea that they're training like a boxer, right? Okay, if, you're, if your idea of working out is mostly fun, then that's great. But um, if you're, let's say you're lying on your flat on your back with a pair of 20-pound dumbbells and you're going to explode with those 20-pound dumbbells up, you're going to basically catapult those 20-pound dumbbells up, right? And that's going to pull your arms up. So... If your objective is to gain strength, basic usable strength, I would say always use uh, a, a deliberate speed, not an explosive speed. Control it up, control it down. If your goal, if your niche is so specific that you want to compete in boxing, you want to compete in tennis, then you do want to actually mimic what you're doing. But uh, my observation has been that, especially in men, we have this fantasy they want to be a 400-pound bench presser. They want to be a boxer. They want to be a swimmer. They want to be, you know, a surfer. And they want to – and there's only so many hours in the day. You can't spend three hours. I mean, you got to work. you got to sleep. You probably have a job and family. And, you know, you got to pick and choose. You can't do it all, right? True. But, like, <laughs> you, you, you're not saying, however uh, – let me – just let me just make sure I'm clear on what you're saying, because if you we have clients that are are, are true athletes, you know, okay, they're, right. they're, they're amateur athletes. And let's say you have a tennis player. You're not suggesting that we kind of mimic uh, with weights in the weight room uh, a, a tennis stroke just to just to improve their their tennis stroke. Are you? I would say that that could be part of what you do, not all of what you do. But I would definitely if I had a tennis, a competitive tennis athlete. I would definitely work specifically on, let's say, a backhand, trying to mimic some resistance on the backhand so he's getting an improvement of power on the backhand or on an overhand. I mean, you don't want these people to go out on the court or wherever they're going and then why you don't you just strengthen their, Why don't you just strengthen their deltoids that are involved in this and, and you know, their, their posterior delts and anterior delts uh, congruently, you know, according to muscle and joint function, and then, then let them go out on a tennis court and start playing tennis. That, 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 that would work also. But I'm just saying that if I had a tennis athlete, mm -hmm. I, it wouldn't hurt to also incorporate some very, very specific, I would say maybe 10%, 15% of how I would train them might be mimicking certain, especially if they have a weakness in a particular part of their game. 
but because it, it couldn't hurt to do it, right? Um, but if you didn't do it, they're still going to improve on the tennis court just because they've worked the muscles that are involved in that stroke. Okay. But I certainly well, would not. I certainly would not do it if they're just pretending to be competitive. I would try yeah. to talk some sense into them, and I would say, yeah, but you know, the cost benefit, the amount of investment of time, and the reward you're going to get for that. I mean, look, I see people spending hours and hours and hours in the gym hitting their fists on rubber mats, you know, hitting their shins against plastic surfaces, you know, for what purpose? hoping that someday when they punch some guy in the face, their hand isn't going to break. Uh, now, the reality of them ever having to punch some guy in the face are astronomically small. <laughs> but in the meantime, they're developing arthritis. They're probably attracted <laughs> to them. Right. So but like, mm-hmm. but like more practical, more practical for like our situation is, for example, like a lot of golfers, for example, do a lot of resistant. They, you know, there's things with medicine balls and all sorts of things where, like, you know, like uh, resistance backwards, resistance forward. And it, uh, Adam's point is about like, you know, it oftentimes uh, with too many repetitions of that, you know, you're taking them out of you know proper muscle and joint function and perhaps injuring them while training before they even get to right. the point where they want to swing. And, and, and I agree with that. There are some things that you could actually argue are more damaging to you along the way. Like if you're a pitcher. Yeah. And you're doing a lot of repetitive pitching in the gym, and that's already a stressful thing to do. Exactly. All you're doing exactly. is adding to the stress. Yeah, that's how I see it. Uh, moving on, I want to talk about balance and core training, okay. which is another. You know, we started this whole uh, talk, you know, talking about myths and belief systems, and here, he, here's another topic where that's fraught with a lot of uh, different belief systems. Right. So I think you'd agree that many uh, physical therapists and trainers misuse the word balance when right. they refer to doing specific type of exercises that improve balance. Right. Uh, aren't they really referring to improving proprioception rather than balance? And uh, isn't proprioception and balance two different things? Yes, absolutely. Balance is equilibrium. Balance is an in, inner ear. Uh, also, the bottoms of your feet and your eyes are the sensors that basically inform you whether you're standing upright or leaning to the right or about to fall, whether the ground you're standing on is flat or not, that is actually balance, right? And as people get older, their senses start to deteriorate. Their eyes, they're, 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 they have neuropathy, uh, so they don't feel their feet as much, right? So when someone says, you know, I, I, I lose my balance, well, they could have inner ear problems, they could have visual problems, they could have, you know, neuropathy problems, and those things are contributing to them not understanding, not being informed as to whether or not they're upright or not. But if you put that person on a BOSU ball, which is basically proprioceptive training, it's not helping their sensors. They need to see a specialist, an ear, nose, and throat specialist, (laughs) an eye doctor, you know, someone that's going to address their neuropathy in order to really fix their equilibrium issue. But what bothers me about the fitness industry is that it has sold proprioception as balance because balance seems to have more value as a buzzword than proprioception. And so people don't want to argue with fixing their balance. They might argue with improving their proprioception, which is basically <laughs> a skill, right? It's coordination at a particular skill. They might say, well, that's fine. But, you know, if it's going to compromise, and it always does, by the way, if it's going to compromise the resistance exercise portion of that, when I'm combining it, then I'd rather not trade it off. Um, yeah, so, so, so doing, doing unstable exercises, uh, you know, like doing, let's say, a set of squats on, on, a, on a bozu ball or, right. or a wobble board or something like that, uh, that 
you don't feel that that improves balance for some no what what it what it improves it improves your ability to coordinate yourself on that bosu ball <laughs> right you will eventually get very good at that right which of so, course we all know is very important in life to be able to <laughs> do that circus trick well, right well, no it, it is a circus trick and that's exactly what i was going to say is once you get off of that bosu ball you're no longer in that environment to which you've adapted right so it's essentially worthless right now i had a client who said you know i had a trainer who had me standing on bosu balls and i didn't find myself any e any more easy to stand on one leg when i'm washing one foot in the shower right. well that's because when you're standing in the shower it's not the same thing as standing on a bosu ball you got good at the bosu ball coordination trick so what that's about what you got good it's like it's like learning how to juggle so when you're talking about <laughs> balance and strength i mean i find that i have some of those exercises in yoga you know, yeah. yoga, standing on two feet, balancing, yeah. standing on one foot, whatever. And, and I really like doing those. And I definitely, yeah, it's, it's a skill. But you don't feel that that, to me, I guess that has a, it has an impact on my confidence, maybe. You know, my confidence right, and my well, ability let's, let's to. That. And, and yeah. here's, here's where we can't ignore the sociological aspect of fitness. Right. Right. People pick certain types of exercise for identity-based reasons. Okay, okay. <laughs> so they'll pick yoga because it appeals to their sense of identity. Or they'll pick martial arts. Or they'll pick bodybuilding because something about that label appeals to them. They want to be known as holistic or they want to be a <laughs> they want they want a, they want a certain, you know, image belief system, right? Yeah. And it's all part of like you show up with your rolled up yoga mat. You say you're namaste. You know, it's part of. It's true, and I club. love it. <laughs> it's part of, but it is. It, I mean, very few people say, you know, from a mechanical standpoint and a physiological standpoint, here's how I've improved in yoga. What they say is, don't I look good in this particular pose? Here's a picture of me on a beach. Well, it also you know, helps. It, I feel it, like it, it, it also helps with release of stress and and my no, hips there's, are there's, tight yes. and it, it definitely helps. No, with, listen, I'm not poo-pooing yoga. You know, okay. Yeah. Let me just explain. What I'm saying is that we have to understand that there are certain aspects of anything that we select right, that I are agree. based on our ideals and our 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 sense of self. Selection right? bias. So so when and, and part of what happens when we do this proprioceptive training, this BOSU ball training, yoga training, standing on one leg, part of what happens is that we, we improve at that thing. And when we improve at that thing, we feel successful, mm -hmm. right? And that feeling of success may or may not be misplaced. In other words, yes, you can be proud of the fact that you've gotten better at standing on one leg. How useful that is in day-to-day -day life, whether or not that's actually lowered your cardiac risk factors, whether or, whether or not, you know, it's going to make you live longer. Well, maybe, um, maybe, maybe you get a, an acting position where you have to be a stork. Well, <laughs> oh, I think it, it helps well, with I your mean, focus. Honestly, it helps with your focus. Pra for you practical know? purposes and, for, and, and thinking about it from a training perspective, like the idea of like just forget like a wobble board but, or, or a BOSU ball, but just the idea of standing on one leg, practicing doing that. I mean, clearly, for, I would assume for most people, Standing on two legs is more stable than standing on one leg, just because of the nature of the way our right. bodies are in general. Okay, right. in life, going back to training people, let's say the elderly population who need to, who are very concerned about falling all the time, being knocked into, uh, tripping over a crack in the sidewalk or something like that, and being able to sort of 
catch themselves or put all of their weight onto one leg for a split second just so to prevent them from falling. That's mm-hmm. a, I mean, I understand we're talking about skills here, but I feel like I feel that actually standing on one leg, uh, not necessarily for yoga necessarily, but for the sake of just being able to do so, mm-hmm. you know, with with in various positions with your with the with the with the leg that's in the air up in the front to the side to the back, you're asking the leg to actually develop the skill of how to actually stand on one leg. And I think uh, it, it seems to me that for training purposes, people develop confidence to stand better, you know, or, or to be able to catch themselves if they have actually practice something like that. It's I know it's, it's not the balance. same thing as yeah. being pushed or shoved or tripping. Like, I mean, you can practice training doing those things. <laughs> but you but can I mean, catch but, uh, yourself But better. I feel like it's a step in the direction of being able to have Hey, more Mike, trip st- me. See how I do. Yeah, more, <laughs> stability, <laughs> more stability when you are confronted with a, a time in your life where you want to be or going Stable up and, and downstairs. I bet and you can't if, trip yeah. me now. I bet you can't. <laughs> I've been, I've been, I've been practicing my tripping. Yeah, I mean, but that's. I mean, hey, but like it, I guess that's the way you train for that. <laughs> All right, well, we'll just sneak up to the high <laughs> so, so let me like, kind of do like the Pink Panther, you know. <laughs> so let me let me par- let me parse that out for you. Okay, first of all, um, we're talking about actually sort of vastly different things. Mm-hmm. All right, what happens is as we get older, we narrow our movements down to straightforward. When we're young and we're playful and we're playing in the, in the beach and on the sand, we're playing volleyball, we're doing lateral movement, we're doing backward movement, we're jumping up and down. And as we get older, we pretty much move straight forward, right? So we lose our ability to move laterally. We lose our ability to coordinate our brain with these automatic leg movements, right? So let's just say that you are at a party and somebody has put their purse down right next to your right foot. And all of a sudden, you realize that as you started to move to your right, something blocked your foot. By this point, you've already leaned your body weight so far over to the right that you are going to fall. Having stood on one leg will not help you. What will help you is having practiced lateral movement, repositioning that foot. So if I were training you, I would say, okay, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to throw this basketball to you. You're going to shuffle two, three stops to the right. You're going to catch it, throw it back. You're going to shuffle to the right. And maybe I won't tell you where it's going to go. It won't be right, left. You'll have to think. And then all of a sudden, your feet will start to become automatic again. Because preventing falling is more about coordination. Mm -hmm. It's more about having your legs work in autopilot. It's not Uh, about standing on one leg. Literally, when you're standing on one leg, you will not prevent a fall. It may, exactly. you, it may give you the false sense that you will prevent a fall, but a fall happens when you've leaned your body weight too far over, and the only thing that will save you is lifting that leg and moving it somewhere else, and that has to have happened time and time again in some kind of exercise program where you're actually learning basically athletic coordination. Right. That makes okay, complete sense to me uh, to evolve into that. I guess what I'm saying when you're dealing with an elderly person, uh, I feel like I, I, when I, in my mind, I was thinking step one could be starting with getting the muscles like activated. I know that you're, the, the, you're, the skill of standing on one leg, one leg is not the same thing as being pushed, shoved, or tripping over something yeah. and having to catch yourself. Well, I, I but, train uh, seniors, and I have a lady yeah. that's about 78 years old, and, and this is exactly what we do. I have her shuffle. Yeah. I started off having her two steps left, two steps right, catch the ball, throw it back. She's thinking about the ball. She's not thinking about her feet. 
The other day, we were in the gym. Guess what happened? She got her foot snagged. She lifted it, repositioned it, and said, oh, my God, I did it. Well, that's exactly what you train to do. When your foot right. snags, right. you have to have auto, autopilot, auto reaction right. to lift and replant. And that is very different than standing on one leg. Right, right, right. Okay, that's number one. Number two is the muscles that you're talking about um, that are activated on one leg do work with two legs, right? When you're squatting, when you're doing calf raises, when you're doing leg extension, hip extensions, uh, hip flexion, those muscles will be strong if and when you have to lift that leg and reposition it. Yeah, I've always said that. I, I agree with you 100% on that. Yeah, but here's what happens is if someone says, you know, I like the way I feel when I'm standing on one leg on a BOSU ball. I like what that does, whether it's right or wrong. I say, okay, great. <laughs> but, but try not to do it at the same time that you're doing your dumbbell curls because you'll compromise the dumbbell curls. Right. True. Now, if you're, if, if you're, if you're okay with that, then I would say, okay, so the actual question would be is how much am I losing in terms of the compromise of the dumbbell curls and how much am I gaining in terms of the one-legged, whatever you want to call it, stability. And I would venture to say that you're going to gain maybe 2 5% benefit on the, on the leg part and lose 10 or 12% on, on, on the dumbbell part. You're going to lose more than you're going to gain. But if you want to do them, I would suggest doing them separately. I, w I, would, I would want to add one thing, and this is a kind of – it's not too common, but, but it's something to consider anyway uh, when you're doing these one-legged exercises to improve proprioception, balance, call what you will. Uh, you have to also take into account the person you're doing it with, because I have a couple of clients, for example, that have knee that have knee issues, and they're a little bow-legged. And when you're standing on one leg, you actually strain the knee, and you can Make actually you can actually hurt the knee by standing right. on one leg. So here right. you're working on balance, but you're actually going to screw up the knee or right. the lower back, for that matter. So you have All to right, be careful so, with right. the person's and, and knee by the way, anatomy. Even even if they don't have that, that's exactly what happens in all cases. So for those who are listening, here's what happens: you're standing on two legs. You basically have a foot under a knee, under a hip, right? Now, if you were to just lift one leg up off the ground, you're going to fall to the side you lifted unless you reposition the standing leg so that it's straight in the center of your body, right? So that means instead of having two parallel legs, your one remaining standing leg is actually now turned sideways. That change is what's called the Q angle at the hip. And... In order to compensate for that Q angle of the hip, the lower leg goes the other direction, which is called valgus, which is what you're talking about, is which is that knee valgus, having, exactly. to com having to compensate. So you get this person who's standing with a pair of 20 or 30-pound dumbbells. So now he's added a load to the Q angle and the valgus, and you've got more hip strain and more knee strain. Yeah, you can damage a knee and hip. You can. And at the same time, he's compromised his ability to coordinate the curling movement <laughs> in exchange for what he thinks is going to be better Equilibrium? Yeah. No. Maybe better proprioception in that one specific thing, but how often will that be necessary? Right. And so it becomes riskier when you have yes. older people because they're the ones who have the knee and the yeah. knee problems, the instability in the knee. Right. You're much better off probably just doing some uh, knee extensions with them and really just strengthening right. the quads. And, okay, so, mm -hmm. yeah. so while we're talking about one-legged things, um, <laughs> sure. let's, let's talk about one-legged squats. Oh, God. Right? We see people doing these one-legged squats. Yeah. And again, this, this delves into this sociological issue, which is a guy's in the gym. He sees a guy doing it. And right away, he feels challenged. Hey, <laughs> I, I bet I can do that. Well, you know, that isn't the reason why we should do things. It's not like, you know, we're not kids anymore. I mean, when you're 12 and 14 years old, you want to keep up with the kids. But 
you know, when you're 40 years old, 50 years old, you know, you want to make sure that you're getting nothing but reward and very little risk, right? So the guy goes over there and he starts, maybe he has a conversation with the guy that's doing the one-legged squat. Why are you doing that? He goes, oh, I'm improving my core. I'm improving my balance. I'm doubling up the load on one leg instead of using, you know, my body weight on two legs. I'm using my body weight on one leg. So I would say, okay, let's, let's parse all of this out. If it's just a matter of load, you can actually hold weight, dumbbells in your hand, and compensate for that load factor. Use two legs, maintain your balance, maintain your neutral spine, right, and get that aspect of it. What about the balance? Well, again, we're not talking balance, we're talking proprioception. But more importantly than that, in the Q angle and the, and the valgus and all this, is what I'm gonna say right now. If you see a person doing a regular two-legged squat with good form, you'll notice that their back is slightly arched, right? They're holding a neutral spine. Mm -hmm. You will never see a neutral spine on a one-legged squat. It's rounded. And it's rounded. Mm -hmm. And there's a very, very good reason why it's rounded. Not that it's beneficial, it's a, it's a very clear reason. But here's what happens is, and we haven't talked about this, but I know you know about reciprocal innervation. For uh, people that don't know what reciprocal, reciprocal innervation is, it's basically the, the body has a system it involves the central nervous system so that you won't compete with yourself. If you're doing a bicep curl, the central nervous the tricep system turns off. Yeah, yeah, the tricep shuts off. Okay. Well, the same thing happens, by the way, when we stretch, right? That's why a lying leg curl is harder because when you stretch the quadricep, the hamstring loses power. All right. So what happens is when you, when you go down into a one-legged squat, you obviously have to have one leg out in front of you. Well, the fact that that leg is out in front of you means that you are actually stretching your hamstring, right? And the lower you go, the more you have to lift that leg up. And the more you lift that leg up, the more of a, quad, of a hamstring stretch you get. Well, that hamstring stretch is trying to shut off the hip flexor and the quadricep, which is holding the leg up, right? So what would end up happening is if you had a neutral spine, the hamstring stretch would increase completely shutting off the hip flexor and the quadricep. So in order to have that not happen, the spine gets rounded to diminish the hamstring stretch to allow the hip flexor and the quadricep to hold the leg up. So you end up with basically a risk of herniating a disc because you're descending into this squat with a rounded spine. And all you have to do was a two-legged squat, maybe holding a pair of dumbbells to compensate for the, 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 the resistance difference and, and eliminate the valgus, eliminate the Q angle, eliminate the rounding of the back. You know, a lot of what we've, we've used as deciding factors is whether or not it's hard. Like a guy will hang upside down by the ankles and do his abdominal exercise hanging upside down. <laughs> well, that's because it's hard. It's not because it's good. It's not because it's productive. It's because it's hard. It's because he's going to get a lot of admiration by his peers in the gym. It's because other people don't want to dare it or maybe can't do it, but that isn't a good, healthy way to strengthen the abdominal muscles. Obviously, you're going to have a major hip flexor component in there, which creates that lower back strain because you have your abdominal muscles pulling forward on the tailbone and the psoas pulling forward on the lumbar spine. So, you know, we have to be smart. I mean, we should be smart in how we select exercises. We shouldn't do them just on the basis that it's, it's hard to do. Or is impressive. Or is impressive, yeah. We should, <laughs> it's hard to sever that, but a lot of people are completely ruled by showing off in the gym. 
I, honestly, I think a lot. I think that's the great majority of people who walk in our door and walk into gyms everywhere. Is they they and they when they feel quote unquote the workout. I mean, it's really it, hard. It, it's that that's what dictates uh, that they got a good workout. And yeah, then, right. Know, fortunately, you don't see the results that day. You see them over time, or you don't. But yeah. there's also a reason why a lot of people don't stick to their workouts because they don't get results over a short. Well, and, and you know the fitness magazines. Um, and I, by the way, you know. We, there's a reason for everything, right? And fitness magazines have a, 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 a good function in our society, right? But, but let's face it, if you were the publisher of a magazine, a lot of the exercises that we know are best are not very interesting to look at or photograph. The ones that are more dramatic, the ones where you're hanging from your ankles, the, the ones where you're doing a one-legged something, those are more dramatic, right? So they make a better visual. One-arm push-ups. Yeah, I was going to say, like, uh, the physical therapists have people doing one-legged stuff all the time, oh you know, and that's gosh. not that's not uh, fitness magazine. That's medical uh, rehab type of stuff, you know. And I've, I, If I can make this one comment about physical therapists, and again, there's a, there's a time and a place for everything, and there's a good way and a wrong way to do everything. But I remember one time I saw, like, a five-point uh, method of physical therapy. And one was, you know, assessment, and then this, and then this, and this. And the, and the fifth thing was return the patient to the thing that injured them. In other words, <laughs> if, overhead, if, if overhead presses are what injured you, the goal exactly. is to be able to get that person to be doing what they were doing before. It's like, no, 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 no. How about re-educating people and saying you shouldn't be doing overhead presses to begin with? <laughs> but, but doing overhead presses is natural. Now, look, well, I got a funny story about that. But what I was going to say is if you're a pitcher, and you have to, if you're going to make a million dollars or $10 million because you are one of the greatest pitchers in the, in the country, all right, well, maybe the risk to the shoulder joint is worth the risk, right? It's worth the, the money you're making. But for people that are not making millions of dollars, you know, it's just not a sensible thing. What I was going to say was I actually heard someone say, what happens if you get stuck in a basement <laughs> and something heavy lands on the trap door above you? And the only way for you to escape is for you to push that trap door up and out. Oh, my God. And you haven't done overhead presses. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> and I thought, oh, you've got to be kidding me. You're screwed, man. I mean, does anybody That's even it. have a basement anymore? <laughs> <laughs> With that type of door. Yeah. I yeah. yeah. But I mean, it wouldn't yeah, be outside. Outside. And by the, the way, and I never do overhead presses, by the way. I haven't done them in 20 years. And my delts I can tell, I can tell your one. shoulders look a little. Uh, yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, but what I was going to say was, if I found myself in that situation, I'd be able to push that trap door up just fine. <laughs> you know, my deltoids in my—I mean, it's not the healthiest thing to do, as you said, on a repetitive basis. But you know, you know it's funny. It's we're moving our—we're we're, moving—we're moving right now. We're redoing our house and we're, we're redoing the floors. So we had to move all this furniture off our main floor into another into the upstairs. And my wife and I actually carried a, a small couch upstairs. And she works out with us. Uh, and, I mean, Matt, uh, credit to my wife. By the way, a little, little aside here, just to kind of plug my wife a little bit. You know, we've been married 10 years now, and she's been working out with me ever since we met. Oh, wonderful, she's, yeah. She's been doing high-intensity exercise ever since we met. And, and here we she are. Wasn't, she wasn't doing it before she, before she met you? No, she wasn't. She oh, was doing the, the conventional stuff. And uh, anyway, that's a whole other story. But yes, yeah, yeah. she, she's been working out with me ever since, and I'm very proud of her. She's, she's very dedicated to it. Uh, we were carrying this couch up the stairs and uh, it was heavy and, you know, it's awkward, right? You have to kind right. of, if you're at the bottom, you got to lift it up so, you know, it's not right. too it's low. It's level, yeah. Going up way and, 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 and 
and she she handled like a trooper and she, of course she's really strong and yeah. the, but what's really funny about this is is we never practice we when she trains with me uh, we never do that particular movement. Somehow, right. however, she got that couch up the stairs. It's amazing. Well, that's the whole point I made earlier was <laughs> right. if the muscles are stronger through isolation exercise, they'll know what to do when the time comes. You know, we've been doing low back extended. Her, her low back held up. I mean, she, she, she struggled yeah. a little bit. It was a long staircase, but she did it. And uh, this case in point that, you know, you don't have to do that actually. You don't have to carry uh, – right. you don't have to go, you know – join a moving company to to to, to uh to be strong and moving one day yeah. <laughs> but i also think like doing our exercise you know because we're always when you're lifting the heavy weights very slowly when perfect form and you're being guided to do that you do that for years and years whenever you're doing a movement you're more mindful of it you're more mindful of your movement and what are you're you aware. how you're, yeah, doing you're aware it. of what's doing the work yeah that's an excellent point, Sheila, because, you know, we think about those Tai Chi masters that move so slowly, but I wouldn't want to throw a punch at those guys. Yeah. Right. So uh, we're running out of time, Doug, and, and I do want to, I mean, I can talk to you all day, actually, but uh, I don't know how our listeners are going to feel about that. But uh, <laughs> but I do have one more thing I'd love to talk to you about, uh, and that and that is the topic of intensity. Yep. All right. We're talking about, you know, which is different from just working out hard, right? I mean, uh and, and, you know, this, this comes up recently in a New York Times article because they were talking about – they had an article about rhabdo or uh, te technically speaking, rhabdomyolysis. W w myolysis, which, yeah. Yeah. Uh, myolo is that how you say it? Myolosis. Yeah. Yeah, I guess so. Uh, anyway, uh, rhabdo for short. And right. uh, that, that's a condition in which damaged skeletal muscle breaks down very rapidly. And uh, it can really uh, lead to kidney damage. It's, right. it's a very bad condition. It's been getting a lot of press lately because, you know, high-intensity workouts, you know, have, have definitely come into vogue. You know, uh, the brand CrossFit comes to mind. There are all these boot camps and, and the high-intensity spin classes, which, which is what this article kind of talked about. This woman who was doing a spin class, she ended up with a case of rhabdo. Uh, which is a very serious medical condition uh, that sometimes is not reversible, and you can actually have long-lasting effects from that. Right, because because uh, the muscle releases toxins that affect the liver. Exactly. Right. So, uh, you know, extremes excite because that, that's an extreme case, and they are relatively rare. And and, and I think some people have a uh, genetic predisposition to to reaching that. Uh, but. Aside from those extremes, many people do believe, though, that going to deep muscle failure uh, will lead to maximum muscle gains. Uh, the, the harder you work out, the, the deeper you inroad a muscle, uh, the better your, your gains. Uh, so in regards to intensity and recovery, do you agree with that? I mean, is there, is there a right amount of intensity? How do you measure intensity? Uh, do you think the, harder, the more intense an exercise, uh, the better? Absolutely not. There is a right level of intensity. Um, in my book, I have a chart where I show what happens if the intensity level is too low, what happens if it's too high, and what happens if it's just right. And clearly, just right has nothing but benefit. But if it's too low, you won't get the benefit. If it's too, too high, it's like getting a sunburn. In other words, instead of giving you stimulation, you get injury. And when you have an injury, you actually basically have to heal so some people think, hey, if I work out super intensely and I just work a body part once a week, in other words, take a longer amount of time between workouts, I can compensate for the high intensity. No, you cannot. It doesn't work that way. You can't. It's not like recovery time is the great equalizer. Like if you do more frequency, you can do super low intensity. 
Or if you do super high intensity, just take a little extra time and everything will be fine. No, pretty much the way the body works is when you work a muscle, you're going to have somewhere between a two-day and four-day amount of recovery, after which comes what they call supercompensation. That's when the muscle is getting stronger, right? So the goal is to not work that muscle again, assuming you've worked it relatively hard, to not work it until you've passed recovery and have gotten into supercompensation. Right, so this Supercom is kind of remind yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. Supercompensation sorry, then goes up and then back down. So your goal, ideally, is to get that muscle worked again when it's at the top of supercompensation before it comes down to the baseline again. Mm -hmm. So if you wait, let's say, seven, eight, nine days before you work that body part again, regardless of how hard you worked it, you're basically always going back to your baseline. That's why, ideally, you want to work a muscle no more frequently than every other day and no less frequently than once every four or five days. So but how do you how do you how do you find the right? I mean, like you know, one 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 rationale for working out to full intensity until until muscle failure uh, is that you know where you're at. You can be consistent with that time after time. Once you reach muscle failure, you're done. But how do you how do you stop short of muscle failure consistently? And how do you find that? sweet spot of intensity uh i assume it, you know obviously it differs for each individual and there's a lot of other factors involved right. but how well, do you go about as, as as a technician uh training people or training yourself how do you know where to find that sweet spot for intensity well there there are people who have thought that a muscle will not grow unless you take it to failure and that has been completely disproven in research they've shown that not only is it not necessary? It's actually less productive than if you go to a 90, 95% effort. So right. how do you find it? Yeah. The only way you can find it is experimentation. And experimentation only happens with really, really, really good consistency. So when a person comes into the gym and they're sporadic in their workouts, you'll never find it. You have to be intimately familiar, intimately familiar with about how many repetitions you can probably get with this weight on your fourth set. You have to know that, read, and the only way you're gonna know that is if you haven't missed a workout for the last three months, mm. right? Then and only then will you know what 90% is, what 95% is, what, I know exactly where my 95% mark is. Mm -hmm. I know that I, can, that I can get the next rep or that I can't get the next rep, or that the next rep will be you know, beyond the amount of effort that I, that I wanna use. And so that's why I always tell people, before we even start talking about how much intensity is right, we need to, we need to get you absolutely 100% consistent. You need to be really, really, really on track so that you are very familiar with what you can predict will be your level of failure with this weight, with this rep, with the set. Then you can then you can start to say, okay, I'm going to get better results doing, let's say, eight sets of 95% effort than I will with four sets of 100% effort. Now that takes more time. Right, but for muscle yeah. growth, that has been proven to be the point. You will get better growth with a little bit more volume and a little less intensity. And by a little less intensity, I basically just mean less than max. I don't mean yeah. like thirty percent intensity. Yeah, don't wimp out. Yeah, it's not an excuse to wimp out. Oh, right, exactly. they, uh, Doug said you don't have to work out to uh, high I, intensity. Yeah, that's why I made it clear. You know, I'm not saying less <laughs> intensity in that sense, but I am saying you don't have to go to hundred percent. Well, right. for what well, purpose are you talking about here? Because it's like what we do is we we do one set to, well, we call it temporary muscle failure, but it's usually just to, 
I would think that most of our clients are only doing about 95%, you know, because they, they can't go that intense. Right. But they don't we have, time they don't have it. psychological makeup. Yeah. Yeah. So we, yeah. we do time under load. So we're timing it. We're, well, we're checking well, we are talking their time. We're a couple and, different things. I mean, in my context usually is bodybuilding. But okay. in your context or the context of people that are basically doing their three or four day a week workout and they're doing fewer sets because they're trying to get in and out, yeah, you can go they're just 90, 95% maximum effort for one set. Mm -hmm. You're fine. Yeah, and stay very strong and yeah. uh, way into old life. Uh, but yeah, bodybuilding is a whole other ball game. You know, right, obviously right. volume and, and, and varying intensity right. and being, you got to be so exacting when it comes to maximizing muscle hypertrophy. And you have to have the genetics too. I mean, we're, what I'm noticing is some people do better, like you were saying, Doug, you know, some people do better at this level of intensity and this amount of reps versus somebody else. I mean, there's so many just genetic components alone that that can affect yeah. all this not to mention uh the, the what else they do in their life their stress levels their age their sleep it goes on and well, on and yeah i was going to mention that you, that when you talk about intensity you have to take into consideration their age their hormone levels their nutrition how much sleep they're getting their mm -hmm. other activities that are requiring calories you know all of that factors into how much intensity is appropriate for that person today yeah, but you also but, said something that's very key, and that is, you know, the, the, the starting the, the starting point for all this is consistency. And I can't tell you how much I implore that uh, yeah. to all my clients that, uh, you know, you have to be consistent with this. Yeah. You that know, is the most important. I always tell people intensity and frequency are far less important than consistency. Consistency mm -hmm. and frequency and regularity matter much more than intensity. Amen, brother. Yeah. Thank you very much. Well, this has been great. I really appreciate all the time you spent with us. We'll have to do us. it again sometime. My pleasure. Oh, God. All right. I'll take you up on that. All right. It's a deal. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks again to professional bodybuilder, trainer, and biomechanics expert, Doug Brignoli, for joining us here on the Inform Fitness Podcast. We will have links in the show notes to Amazon for you to pick up Doug's book, Million Dollar Muscle, a historical and sociological perspective of the fitness industry. And also in the show notes, as always, will be a link to grab Adam's book, Power of 10, the once-a-week slow-motion fitness revolution. Included in Adam's book are several exercises that support this protocol that you can actually perform on your own if you are not currently near one of our seven informed fitness locations across the U.S. And to find out if you are lucky enough to be near an informed fitness, click on over to informfitness.com. There you'll find blog posts from Adam. We have several videos and, of course, bios and photos of all the trainers that you're hearing here on the Informed Fitness Podcast. We really do appreciate you, Informed Nation, for joining us each and every week. And until next time, for Sheila Melody, Mike Rogers, and Adam Zickerman of Informed Fitness, I'm Tim Edwards with the Inbound Podcasting Network.